0: There is a, an outline handout. You may have missed it uh, as you came in, if you, uh, if you came in early especially. It's on the back table. Feel free to jump up and grab one if that will be of help to you. We'll be in Genesis chapter 36, actually through the first verse of chapter 37 today, but mostly Genesis 36. This chapter plus the first verse of the next chapter constitute another toledote, another section in the book of Genesis, and it's mostly material that most of us would struggle to find personally useful, <laughs> put it that way. But sort of, sort of like we did when we were at the Table of Nations, for instance, Genesis chapter 10, remember way back then, um, I think there is a theme here which Moses, by the Spirit of God, is trying to emphasize for our attention and understanding and I do want to focus on the theme and give that its proper uh, due before we move on to the story of Joseph and his brothers. We've been in the book of Genesis a long time. And this, this, uh, the last number of weeks, we have been in the section which largely focuses on Isaac's two sons. Isaac, the son and heir of Abraham, had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. We are to the end of that section, finally. Um, as, as we see from these section markers where it says these are the generations of so-and-so, these are the Toledot of so, so-and-so, so we've talked about how that is a section divider in Genesis. But I want to remind you of two texts we've already covered quickly about Jacob and Esau because we will see these reflected in in what is said about Jacob and Esau in our text today. First of all, before these two were ever born, once they had been conceived in their mother's womb, we read in, well, uh, actually just before that, we read in Genesis 25, starting in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. You might recall that Esau is the older, though they are twins, because he came out first. And then Jacob came out grasping Esau's heel, which contributed, of course, to Jacob's name, Heel Catcher. (laughs) But then there was a later text. After Esau had despised his birthright and sold it for a pot of red stew, sold it to his brother Jacob. And then after Esau and his father Isaac had had this secret uh, agreement to, to give Esau the blessing nonetheless... Of the firstborn. Uh, Rebekah and Jacob had come up with their own plan. and, And they had deceived their father Isaac. Into giving the blessing to Jacob. When he thought he was giving it to Esau. And just as Isaac and Esau are. Finally understanding what has happened. That Jacob now has the blessing they thought Esau would get. We read in Genesis 27 verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. We'll see much of that prophecy unfold as we look at the nation of Edom today. The nation of Edom. Let's look, first of all, at verses 1-19 through of Genesis chapter 36. As we unfold the text, first of all, Uh, And and I I should have mentioned, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned the the title of the the sermon. That is, The Nation of Edom in the Land of Seir. The Nation of Edom in the Land of Seir. Before Moses goes on with the story of the promised seed line, promised offspring of Abraham, Jacob, now Israel, and his twelve sons, he's telling us what happened to the the side of the family that did not receive that blessing. He tells us about Esau, whose descendants became the nation of Edom. So here, <clears throat> excuse me, verses one through nineteen, we see the forefathers of Edom. Verse one: These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites: Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite; Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite; and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter the sister of Nebio. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basimuth bore Ruel, And Aholobama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then, remember now, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. Esau would not remain in the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. So, Verse six, it says, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. (coughs) These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimuth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizab. These are the sons of Basimuth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholobama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibian, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeish, Jalam, and Korah. Verse 15 These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimuth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholobamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jesh, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholobamah, the daughter of Enah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So bear with me as we just note a few things. We won't take a lot of time, obviously, just on mostly names. Um, And of course, it's even harder for us than the original readers because this is very foreign to us. We don't have this neighboring nation with this history that's right next door to us. Maybe if I were using names from, let's say, the World War II era of history, people might make more connections, right? Because that's more familiar to us. This would have been much more familiar to the Israelites, because this was their neighbor to the south and east. Edom was um, a rather arid land, area in modern Jordan, um, and to the uh, southeast of the Dead Sea mostly. Um, By some accounts, the land of Edom at times reached all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba on the Red Sea in the south. But Dry country, often forbidding country, it's called the hill country of Seir, and don't think of nice gentle hills. Uh, it was, it's very rugged. In fact, some of you might be familiar with, uh, and as I think of it, um, it's even been featured in a movie or two, which I, I won't get into here, but you might be familiar with the rock city of Petra, the red rock city of Petra. That is in that region, uh, which was Edom at the time. So this was not the land of Canaan. It was not um, nearly as as naturally fertile and all that. So even here we see Isaac's words fulfilled as as Esau's family moves down into into this area. But apparently at the time, it could support. It had enough resources there to support their flocks and herds. I'm not going to get into all the the details of how there are confusing lists, if you compare lists throughout Genesis, lists of Esau's wives. Um, there are some explanations, possi- possible explanations, but we simply don't know for sure how to untangle everything. Some think maybe, uh, based on some of these lists, uh, maybe Esau, you know, he'd married those two Hittite wives that were a grief to his father and mother, but maybe one of those wives died childless, and according to this list, he might have married a different Canaanite woman, who did have children. We simply don't know all the facts to put it all together. <clears throat> um, but one thing is interesting, verse 7. It's interesting that that intentionally, it seems, uh, very similar wording is used in verse 7 when, when it explains why Esau left Canaan, as was used way back in Genesis 13 when Lot departed to Sodom. And he parted ways with Abraham. Verse 7 here says, For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau as Edom. Genesis 13, 5-6 had said, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There's a theme, obviously, being repeated here. Um, those who are in the family of Abraham but are not do not end up as part of the, the line of promise, they, they exit stage left. <laughs> they, t- they take an off-ramp. Um, and they find their own country, which God gives to them. Um, later in Deuteronomy, for instance, it speaks of how uh, the Lord is saying, I gave... Moab's land to them. I gave Ammon's land to them. They were the children of Lot. I gave Edom to the children of Esau. God is in his providence even providing for Abraham's other family. But they are not the line of promise. It's also interesting. You have names in here like Eliphaz and Teman, which should sound familiar from the book of Job. There was uh, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz the Temanite. (laughs) And, um, Also, if you look at Lamentations 4, verse 21, it refers to Edom as the land of Uz. Seems like uh, the the more you compare scripture with scripture, uh, Job was probably a godly person early in maybe Edom's history, or at least somewhere near there. Um, That's just an interesting note along the way. But verse 12, Moses gives special notice to one son of a concubine whose name is Amalek. He was the son of Eliphaz's concubine, Timna, a concubine who had been obtained from the Horites, the, the earlier inhabitants of, of Seir. Um, sons of concubines weren't always guaranteed an inheritance. So then it makes sense. It might explain why the Amalekites end up being this nomadic group south of Edom and a bitter enemy of Israel. In fact, they, they start everything. They, they attack Israel's, um, the, the outer parts of Israel's group. They attack the weak and the infirm, uh, just evil. And that's how the warring between Israel and Amalek started in the first place. Is Israel came out of Egypt. Um, so again, Genesis is the foundation for everything and all the major storylines in Scripture. And that comes out again here. Let's go to verses 20 through 30 quickly, where it it talks about the earlier inhabitants of this land of Seir, which became Edom. The earlier inhabitants of Seir. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zubion, Ena, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. There's the mother of Amalek right there. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Ena. He is the Ena who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ena, Dishon, and Aholobama, the daughter of Ena. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Karan. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zevan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Iran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ena, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. Now, why does Moses go into all that? <laughs> um, he's just noting there were people there before Esau. Uh, the Horites. The word Horite could possibly mean cave dweller or possibly also in the sense of miners. And there were mines of various sorts, like copper mines down that direction. But the point here largely is that Esau, um, his family married into a leading family, that of Anah, the son of Zibian, who was a Horite. So partly by intermarriage, Esau um, intermingles with the people of the land, just as he married Canaanites when he was in Canaan. He's not making any effort to stay a separate holy people, even though he's descended from Abraham. He intermarries with whoever is around, wherever he is, idolaters or whoever. Deuteronomy 2.12 also tells us that eventually, perhaps it just started with intermarriage, but eventually the Edomites subdued the Horites in warfare. Deuteronomy 2.12, Moses says the Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Then the um, the last part of the chapter here, verses 31 through 43, we have the early kings and clans of Edom. And I'll read that quickly. Verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela the son of Beor reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab the son of Zerah of Bozrah reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrika reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul, or Saul, of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Aholobama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Chiman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. So it just lists here the early kings, before there was any king in Israel, the early kings and then the clans, Named according to important people in Edom. The clans of Edom. The kings seem not to be a family dynasty. Because none of them is the son of the previous king. Maybe they were elected kings from among the nobility. Not really important for our purposes. But there's partially a fulfillment here of the promise to Abraham. It's not the main fulfillment. But it adds to it. God had told Abraham, kings will come forth from you. So even in Edom. Um, kings come forth from the Abrahamic line. But in in Genesis here, in in this section, there's one verse left to the section. Verse 1 of chapter 37. Quite the contrast. Turns away from Esau forever in Genesis to Jacob. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So verse 1 puts our focus back on the heir of the promised land. The heir of the promised land. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Richard Belcher says, Finally, there is a contrast between Esau and Jacob in this section. Esau intermarried with the people of the region, but Jacob took wives from outside the land. Esau also moved from the land to settle in the area of Edom, while Jacob was heir to the promise God made concerning the land. That's the concluding verse of this section has Jacob dwelling in the land of Canaan. Just like his ancestors, he is a sojourner in the land, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. So in other words, Esau got what he wanted now. He got red stew now. Though he sold his birthright to get it. <laughs> The family of Esau freely intermarried with the cursed line of idolatrous Canaan. They even conquered land, as Israel would later do. Some earthly success there. Edom got their own land and nation and kings now. But it was not the promised land. It was not the covenant nation. It was not the promised messianic king. Edom got worldly power and riches early, while Israel became enslaved in Egypt. Yet Edom would come to bitterly envy God's blessing upon Israel. This reminds us of all, before I go further, um, and we'll get back to application, but I think I need to make this one application here. This should remind us of everyone who exchanges eternal life for their best life now. Such is the character of Esau, such is the character of his descendants. Reminds me of Luke 16, verse 19 through verse 25. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So there seems to be, even some of it, you might just call typology. But there seems to be this picturing worked out here. Jacob has to wait for his good things. They're still sojourners. They don't have land of their own. Well, Esau can just settle down right into the world and be at home. And have his good things now. we'll we'll come back to that. We've unfolded the text. Let's see the theme continued. Um, Sometimes we have to zoom out a lot in Scripture, as we've seen already. When we see a theme begun in Genesis, uh, and we have to zoom out to the big picture of the Bible to see, okay, what point is this contributing to? Why is Moses spending this much time on this? As we continue to see the theme throughout Scripture of Edom, what's Edom all about? Why should we care about Edom and the story of God's promises being fulfilled? Um, We see Edom in in two, there's overlap here, but in two ways. First of all, Edom, the hostile neighbor to Israel. And second, Edom, the doomed adversary of God and his people. Edom, the hostile neighbor and Edom, the doomed adversary. If you have the notes there, don't don't choke too much as you see all the references. I won't read all that literally, but it's there in case you want to reference it. So that's why it's there. Edom was a hostile neighbor, a hostile brother to Israel in the storyline of the Bible. And they're all suspicious of Israel, to say the least. Numbers 20, when Israel has come out of Egypt and they're on their way to the land of promise, to the land of Canaan, they don't want, they don't need the land of Edom. God has told them to leave that alone. It's their brother Esau's. But the easiest way into Canaan would be if they could take the king's highway straight through Edom. So Numbers 20, verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And I listed Deuteronomy 2 there as well, where God had told them, don't mess with them, even if you have to go around them. Because I have given, he says, I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So Edom stays down there, but they are no friend to Israel. We see Edom apparently be a problem for Israel later, militarily. But the kings, when Israel finally does get kings, once Edom has had kings for a long time, uh, King Saul, for instance, fights against the Edomites for Samuel 14. And the Amalekites, by the way, who are their own group by now, seem to be often marauders and and, um, nomadic people. Then we see an Edomite show up in an interesting way in 1 Samuel 22. Turn there with me quickly. 1 Samuel 22. An interesting but tragic way. Doeg the Edomite. King Saul, in this part of the Bible story, is jealous of David, who's the Lord's anointed and who Saul knows will will replace him, but Saul thinks David's trying to get the throne. So Saul is frustrated because he can't find David and and, uh, defeat him like he wants to. And so Saul's accusing his his own servants and his, his court of somehow being in league with David behind his back. And... No one has anything to say to, to Saul in his rage, but then someone in Saul's pay speaks up. 1 Samuel 22, verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse, meaning David, coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, that's the high priest. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So King Saul then summons the high priest and all his father's house, all the priests in their town called Nob. Saul accuses Ahimelech of being on David's side behind his back. And Ahimelech says, I didn't know that you and David were, were at odds. Um, I had no knowledge of this. But Saul won't hear of it. And Saul tells his soldiers to cut these priests down. He's in such a rage. But Saul's own soldiers won't do it. They won't kill the priests of the Lord, but one man will. Down in verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. 1 young priest named Abiathar escapes to tell David Doeg the Edomite uh, you might even see him in one of the in the heading of one of the psalms where David composes a psalm on this occasion as he's grief-stricken at what has happened but he leaves Doeg to God to deal with and he mentions that in one of the psalms David himself then deals with the Edomites in war 2nd Samuel 8 David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So now the Edomites are under the yoke of their brother Jacob, aren't they? King David did that. But then, um, during Solomon's days, when Solomon, David's son, displeases the Lord... There is someone from the royal house of Edom who has survived named Hadad. We see that in 1 Kings 11. Hadad goes down to Egypt, gets in favor with Pharaoh of Egypt, marries into the Pharaoh's own family. And then he comes back to to be again an adversary to Solomon once David and his general Joab are dead. And we see the Edomites coming against Israel various times. There's times when again the Edomites are maybe allies of Israel and Judah against someone else. But usually the Edomites are being a problem for Israel and Judah. In the days of King Jehoshaphat of Judah, 2 Chronicles 20, um, the Edomites come up with the Ammonites and the Moabites to attack Jerusalem. But God tells Jehoshaphat and his people, you don't have to fight this battle, just go out and sing my praises. Interesting way of warfare, but... Second Chronicles 20 verse 22 says, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed for the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. Remember, that's Edom's land, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. But then in the days of Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, wicked Jehoram, who married into Ahab's family, Edom revolts permanently from Judah. And uh, it says that uh, Joram went and he, uh, he fought them. He struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom, it says, revolted from the, the rule of Judah to this day. again over and over we have the descendants of David like Amaziah going and striking down 10,000 men of Seir and then the men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive 2nd Chronicles 25 and the 10,000 they captured alive they took to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were all dashed to pieces but then Amaziah ends up after he defeats the Edomites he starts worshiping the Edomite gods which God rebukes him for and says why in the world if you just defeated these people. Do you think their gods are going to help you? And the Edomites again attack in the time of King Ahaz, Second Chronicles twenty-eight, and so on and so on. Amos one verse eleven and twelve, we see the Lord give some insight into Edom's hostility. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. There was a settled resentment between these nations, a settled resentment between the two nations and Edom would not let go of it. So God says, So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra, one of their capital cities. Psalm 137 7, in the context of the Babylonians destroying Jerusalem and Judah mourning in the place of their exile about their Babylonian captivity, the Edomites come up. Psalm 137 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Edom was a hostile neighbor and they never let go of their resentment against Judah. They were always envious and suspicious and angry with them. So because of this hostility against God's chosen people. (laughs) The other theme is that Edom is the doomed adversary. Edom the doomed adversary. Way back in the days of Moses, when when the Moabites and Midianites try to get this prophet Balaam to curse Israel for them, God has Balaam pronouncing curses actually on Israel's enemies. <laughs> totally frustrating the, those who had hired Balaam. Here's one thing Balaam said, and you may recognize some of this uh, messianic sort of prophecy here. Numbers twenty-four verse seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Way back then... You could see this as David and the line of David, but especially the Messiah. He's pictured as crushing the enemies of the people of God and Edom comes up prominently there, don't they? The whole book of Obadiah, I say the whole book, it's like 20 some verses and that's it. In the Minor Prophets, the whole book of Obadiah is just about pronouncing God's judgment on Edom. (laughs) I'll read you a few sections, not the whole thing. Verses 1-4 through of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 8, will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Down in verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Later it says the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Again, I said I wouldn't read every one of these. But Edom's doom comes up over and over. Jeremiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah says, As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord. No man shall dwell there in Edom. No man shall sojourn in her. Ezekiel pronounces woes against Edom. Because, he says, Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah. And has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Malachi chapter 1 begins... And listen carefully to this. This language comes up in Romans 9 as well. Malachi 1 verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. This is after the exile. Judah is back in her land. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Historically, what happened to Edom? Well, the Babylonians came in. As they had done to Jerusalem, so it was done to the Edomites. That was a real blow to them. And eventually, the Nabataean Arabs took their land from them. It was the Nabataeans, for instance, who were in control of that city of Petra, now famous. And so, the few Edomites that were left, they had to move. They moved their homeland into what used to be the south of Judah. And their homeland became known as... Idumea, or Idumea. And before the Romans took over, the Jews during that time, remember the Maccabean Revolt, the Hasmoneans, the Jews who were creating their own little kingdom there, they, they forced the Idumeans to convert to Judaism if they were going to remain there. And you all know an infamous Idumean family, the Herodians. Herod the Great and his family. He was an Edomite. It was Herod the Great who, like Doeg, went on a murderous rampage out of senseless hostility toward the anointed house of David. But the scriptures don't simply pronounce literal judgments against Edom themselves. As I hinted before, they use Edom as a picture of God's wrath against this entire godless world, and I want to show you that. Edom's doom becomes a foreshadowing of damnation for all nations who reject God. Go to Isaiah 34 with me, please. Isaiah 34. Verse 1. Look how God initially indicates he's talking about what is going to happen to all the ungodly. And then he zooms in on Edom as a picture of that. Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll, which is quoted in in Revelation chapter six in relation to the second coming. The sky rolling up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Brimstone. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And then... I won't read to the end of the chapter, but it has this list of creatures, unclean creatures who will be the only inhabitants left forever. Some even possibly with, with demonic overtones in the thinking of that day. But a picture of hell. Her streams are turned into burning pitch. Her soils turned into sulfur. Her older translations, brimstone. Fire and brimstone. It's what Edom becomes. Now, you've hung with me very patiently. Let's go more directly to applying that theme. When we think about these themes of Edom, what difference should it make to us? You see three things there. First of all, God's grace makes the difference between saints and sinners. Sinners. As it said in Malachi, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Referring both to the men and to the nations, you might say covenantally. What happened to Esau and his line? We've been, I mean, uh, I should say that differently, I'm sorry. Uh, When we see Edom and what became of them, we should say, what happened? They're people of Abraham. What happened to them? and we've been encountering the trouble and depravity within Jacob's family. They weren't upstanding citizens, were they? So what made the difference? Why did Israel receive such blessings while Edom became a horror? Only you can only explain that by God's gracious choice. God set his electing love on Jacob. And then on the nation of Israel, not because they deserved it at all. And he let Edom go their own way in their natural evil. Romans 9, verse 6. I think it's a familiar text for many of us. Paul describes the election of grace which reassures him that though he has great sorrow over his unbelieving fellow Jews, yet that doesn't mean the word of God has failed. It doesn't mean God's plan hasn't worked. He says, this is the plan. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Did God owe his mercy to both Jacob and Esau? No. By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's grace makes the difference, as we apply it to ourselves, between saints and sinners. Don't you think that the reason you're here today, don't you dare think, that the reason you're here today believing the truth in a covenant relationship with the true God, and other people aren't, is because you deserved God's grace and they didn't. Or that at least at some point in your life you made the right choice and they didn't. Or somehow it all comes back to you. No, it doesn't. Don't think that because you have unbelieving family members that that's because of anything but God's choice. And while they still live, there is still hope. God gives us the means of the gospel to call people to Himself don't give up on your unbelieving family members. But what I'm saying is, even if they never believe, that's not in the end analysis because, well, we were better than them. Israel was tempted to think they were better than the Edomites and other pagan nations. And God often rebukes them for that. It's not... For your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to do what I am in the New Covenant, he said. (laughs) You should be utterly ashamed of your sins, he said. But God's grace makes the difference between saints and sinners. And because that's true, it's all of God's grace which he is free to grant as he will. And he owes no man anything. Because that's true, we come to the second point of application. That God's choice disregards human pedigree, and power. God is not bound to deal with people by this world's standards of success or importance. Edom had great power and wealth at times. The Edomites, in fact, were very self-sufficient. And as for pedigree, they came from Abraham's own family. But none of these things recommend anyone to God. And it doesn't matter how much success you think you have in this world. God still owes you nothing. You have to come to God with empty hands. Jeremiah 9.23 Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It's also interesting that in the verses right after that, God lumps unbelieving Israel who do not boast in the Lord. He lumps them right in with the Edomites and all the other peoples around them and says, you're all the same and I'm going to judge you all the same. You cannot stand on your wisdom, your might, your riches before me. So Paul quotes Jeremiah 9 in 1 Corinthians 1. When he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Think the Israelite slaves versus the Edomites. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Remember, John chapter one tells us that those who are born of God. To whom God gave the right to become children of God, those who believed in Christ's name, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So the NIV, I think, is is right here um, based on the Greek, they were not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but they were born of God. In other words, And remember, John had a lot of proud Jews with a proud heritage in his audience. The real children of God aren't the children of the flesh. It's not what family you're in. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. It's all God's grace. God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Don't come to God saying, I come from a good family. I've grown up in church. As many of us have, myself included. Don't come to God assuming that, well, of course, I have, a, I have a better standing with you, and you just have to clean me up a little bit, not like those wretched sinners out there. No. God's choice disregards human pedigree and power. Last thing, God's promises outlast this hostile world. thinking of Edom as that hostile adversary, the hostile neighbor and doomed adversary. Edom had a rich history, a secure nation. They had great kings, great riches and might. They were right on the the caravan trade routes, the king's highway. They had a lot of riches. So much so that they were often a threat to the people of God. But where is Edom now? Can you look on a map and point Edom out to me? Well, what about you? Are you banking on this wicked world? And what it offers? Or are you like Esau's brother Jacob? Are you banking on the promises of God? Esau sold his birthright for a single meal, Hebrews says. And afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected Because he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau despised the promised Savior and his promised kingdom. He wanted other things and he wanted them now. What about you? What do you crave? What do you love? What's keeping you from living simply and only for Jesus Christ? What gets in the way? First John two fifteen. do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. Speaking of the world as this godless world system under Satan's sway that hates God and despises him and lives for now. The world is passing away along with its desires, John says. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That promised Savior that Esau despised, he didn't care about that birthright. That promised Savior has come. He has died to redeem sinners as a people for himself. He's risen from the dead to give them eternal life. He now reigns from God's right hand above all other kings. And this Jesus will come again to put down those who choose the fleeting things of this world over him. Jesus will come as judge of the living and the dead to rescue his people and crush his enemies. He, like his father David, will spill the blood of Edom. Look at Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The question is asked of the Messiah, who is also the Lord God. Verse 2 of Isaiah 63. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their life blood on the earth. You know what a wine press is? Was, I guess, in the ancient world? A system of two vats, usually a higher and lower. In the upper vat, you'd have the grapes fresh to be squeezed, to have the juice squeezed out of them that would make wine. And you'd have people often in their bare feet. I know we moderns go, ew but they're holding ropes or something of that nature and with their bare feet they are stomping the grapes. And of course, they get very stained from that process. But then the, the juice flows into the lower vat until they have the wine they need, the fresh wine. But here, Jesus himself is saying, on the day of vengeance and redemption for my people, I will come and the nations, the ungodly will be the grapes and I will trample them and stain all my garments with their lifeblood. And that's not just Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's Revelation 19. In fact, that's where it's getting much of its language from Isaiah 63, where he comes from Edom, having fresh from this bloody triumph. Isaiah 19, 11, Then I saw heaven opened From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So thus, as we close today, there's a hymn we'll sing in closing, but I want to read it for you first here. Who is this that comes from Edom, all his raiment stained with blood? To the slave proclaiming freedom, bringing and bestowing good. Glorious in the garb he wears, glorious in the spoils he bears. Tis the Savior now victorious, traveling onward in his might. Tis the Savior, oh how glorious, to his people is the sight. Satan conquered and the grave, Jesus now is strong to save. Why that blood his raiment staining? Is the blood of many slain? Of his foes, there's none remaining, none the contest to maintain. Fallen they are, no more to rise, all their glory prostrate lies. Mighty victor, reign forever, wear the crown so dearly won. Never shall thy people, never cease to sing what thou hast done. Thou hast fought thy people's foes, thou wilt heal thy people's woes. You see, the victory that one day everyone will see is the victory that began and was sealed at the cross. When Jesus conquered Satan and sin and death. And one day he will very visibly put down even the last enemy, which is death. But know which side you're on. Know whose people you are. And be sure of that, not because of your own works, but because of God's grace. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, I thank you for these people's kind attention on not so easy a subject or not so familiar a subject at least. But it received great emphasis in your word in this spot, so we ask that you will use the themes that have come up here from the scriptures in our hearts. Remind us of your grace and of the fact that your grace is free and can be merited by no man. Remind us of what we might be without Christ. That if you let us go our own way, we will march straight into damnation. Remind us of your power to deal with your enemies who harden their hearts against you and your people. And Lord, encourage us today as your people that we are new covenant Israel, undeserving, and yet we are the recipients of all the grace you have to give in your Son. Bless us as we think on our Savior, who is a mighty conqueror. And may we know that we are in Him by by grace alone and through faith alone in what He has done in His person and work in our place. We pray this in His name. Amen.